before we go on, go ahead and turn with me to uh, Hosea chapter 12. And a, a week or two ago, my daughter Faith and I, we went outside and did something that I used to like doing as a kid. We took a magnet and we put it in a Ziploc bag and then we went and found some sand and some dirt and let the magnet pick up all the iron ore that's down in the sand. I am getting like zero feedback. Have you guys never done this? Have you never taken a magnet outside? Really? Your kids would love it. Put it in a Ziploc bag so you don't get the iron ore all over the magnet, and then you just take it. Thank you. Okay, come over this afternoon. We'll find some iron ore together, okay? Okay, <laughs> you collect it. See, we just, we just put it in the bag, like on the outside of the bag, and then you pull the magnet out, and it just drops off onto the ground, and then you can get some more. And maybe this is why you've never done it, because there's not really a conclusion for it. When you're done, it's just... Okay, well, let's go back in the house now. But it was fun for the time. Uh, but as we were doing it, I had thought, you know, there's a, a whole world of small things under our feet that we don't even notice unless we take the time to stop and look. And I was remembering a time that when I was a kid, I lived on daily, right across the street, just down like a half mile. And... Our neighborhood was, it was a treasure full of small, otherwise inconsequential items that the boys in our neighborhood would trade with one another. And I remember one time that we took our treasures and we went down to Josh's house and we, we all laid out our treasures and then you would start bartering and negotiating to see what you might have to give to get someone else's treasure. But on this day, there was a vial, a glass vial filled with water, a lid on tight, and on the side was written, real gold. Real gold. So we each took turns, we looked at the vial and it was golden, and it was shiny, and it also taught the undiscerning kid down the street a truth and a lie. You see, when you get to fool's gold, which you can find down in the sand, it looks like gold. It has the appearance of gold. And much like that fool's gold, our lives can often have a little glint, a little bit of a shine that is a half-truth, a partial truth, a little bit of a lie mixed in with something that otherwise might be mistaken as the truth. See, gold has always been valuable. It is the gold standard. Peter even says in his first letter, he says that the proven character of your faith is more valuable than gold. The proven character of your faith more valuable than gold. What he's saying is that a godly character is more valuable than all of the riches. 
A godly character is more valuable than the touch of King Midas. A godly character is worth more than gold. See, in Hosea's day, they were riddled, the people, the Israelites were riddled with fool's gold. Deceit, deception, lies abounded. And it wasn't just something they did. It was part of who they were. It wasn't just a one-time mistake. It was a way of living for the Israelites. You know, the book of Hosea has kind of a, they call it a narrative arc. And the book of Hosea, it, it starts out bad. It then goes to bad and it continues being bad. But all throughout that, the narrative arc is looking toward the very end of the book, chapter 14, which we'll look at next week. But all throughout the book, we see that while not everything that glitters is gold, we do see that week after week, chapter after chapter, that God is the real thing. That God is not fool's gold. He is not an artificial look-alike. That God is the one steady and steadfast thing from chapter 1, verse 1, through the end of chapter 14. And today is no different. We're going to see that God, even though the people are riddled with lies, that God is the true thing. Let's go ahead and pray and we'll read our text. Lord, we ask that as we look at these chapters in Hosea, that you would show us where in our lives we might be too much like the Israelites. Where in our lives we need to turn away from what is fake and what is deceitful and what is fraudulent and turn to the truth. Lord, teach us through your word and through your spirit what you want our lives to look like. May we not fill our heads with information. May we fill our hearts with transformation that comes through Christ, that comes through your word, that comes through your spirit living and active inside of us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Hosea chapter 12. Actually, well, the very end of chapter 11. So we'll start in chapter 11, verse 12. This is Hosea chapter 11, verse 12. It says, Ephraim surrounds me with lies. The house of Israel with deceit. Judah still wanders with God and is faithful to the holy ones. Ephraim chases the wind and pursues the east wind. He continually multiplies lies and violence. He makes a covenant with Assyria and his olive oil is carried to Egypt. I want to look at these a little bit and in your mind be thinking of what kind of person Hosea is describing here. Ephraim, chapter 11, verse 12, surrounds me with lies. Hosea could have said they're liars, but they surround God with lies. The house of Israel with deceit. They are liars, they tell lies, and they purposefully, intentionally are trying to deceive God. That takes lying to a whole nother level, thinking that we are capable of deceiving God. 
whose eyes and ability go throughout the entire world, God who sees the heart, and they are going to deceive God. Chapter 12, Ephraim chases the wind. Not much more foolish than trying to chase after something that you can't catch. For even if they were to catch it, they're left with nothing. So not only do they chase the wind, but they pursue the east wind. To them, the east wind was a wind that blew either kind of northeast across the Arabian desert, or it blew east over the Saharan desert. Both of those winds were a hot wind that parched the land, that dried out the crops, that left destruction. They pursued the east wind. God is telling them in their context what they would understand, you're seeking out and pursuing your own destruction. If we had to give them a word for this, we would just say, this is dumb. You're seeking out, pursuing, chasing down, hunting down something that will destroy you. But this isn't a one-time thing. Still in verse 1 of chapter 12, he continually multiplies lies and violence. This is a pattern for the people. He makes a covenant with Assyria, their enemy, and olive oil is carried off to Egypt. So now they have made partnership with someone that God said do not make partnership with. Their enemy is now their partner. And as a result, their olive oil is carried off to Egypt. I think their olive oil represents God's blessing here. Olive oil was frequently used as a term for blessing. It also used to anoint kings. It was used in the sanctifying process to set apart the priests, the tabernacle, the tools and utensils used in the worship of God. They would use the olive oil to purify and set aside something as holy to God. And here, their olive oil is carried off to Egypt. And it's because they are continually multiplying lies and violence. This section here kind of paints this picture of our sinful nature and the holy nature of God. Our sinful nature telling lies, offering have-truths, and the nature of God being perfect, the source of truth, absolute truth. See, truth for God is of an attribute of his. It's not what he does, it's who he is. And lying is a deviation from God's nature. Truth is a virtue that God also wants to develop in us. Psalm 51.6 says, you desire truth in the heart. God is truth and the source of truth. And the people here are going to be judged because they are multiplying lies, trying to deceive God, surrounding God with lies. Israel had been fully given to their lies. It wasn't just something they did, it was who they are. I would imagine that that is probably more rare for us. I don't think that most of us 
would be classified as liars. Just everything you do is a lie. Everything you say is some way misleading. Everything you do is deceitful. I don't think that for us, we would describe one another as that. We might not even consider often what we do as lying. We might take it and say it's not an outright lie. It's just not giving the whole story. It's not the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But it's also not a lie. And so we would want to justify and try to split those hairs of I'm not lying like the Israelites, but I'm also not being forthright and honest. These small lies, white lies we might call them. Turn with me to John chapter 8, and we'll come back to Hosea in a minute. These small lies, this idea of maybe it's not a, a lie, but it's not intentionally deceptive. It's not intentionally. So we try to divide that. Let's read in John chapter 8. We'll start in verse 30. This is Jesus. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to the Jews, John 8, 31, who had believed him, if you continue in my word, you are really my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We are descendants of Abraham, they answered him. And we have never been enslaved to anyone. So how can you say you will become free? Jesus responded, truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. I know you're descendants of Abraham, but you're trying to kill me because, of my, because my word has no place among you. I speak what I have seen in the presence of the Father, so then you do what you have heard from your father. Jesus is contrasting and saying, I have been with God the Father, and I do what God the Father tells me to do. You have been with your father. Verse 39, our father is Abraham, they replied. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would do what Abraham did. But now you are trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You're doing what your father does. We weren't born of sexual immorality, they said. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me because I came from God. And I am here, for I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Who among you can convict me of sin? If I am telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? 
The one who is from God listens to God's words. This is why you don't listen, because you are not from God. Jesus has no amount of compassion for these people that are lying and yet claiming that they follow God. Lying and yet say, God is our father. Let's go back to Hosea. All lies, great or small, that intend to deceive, intend to put the truth in a somewhat other than truthful light, are lies. The big ones, the small ones, everything in between. Satan is the father of lies, according to Jesus. Now, let's look at verse th- uh, starting verse 2, and we're going to see an example of this. Hosea 12, 2. The Lord also has a dispute with Judah. He's about to punish Jacob according to his conduct. Now, you might remember Jacob. His brother Esau had gone out and had come back, and he was very hungry. So Jacob told his brother, I will give you a bowl of stew if you give me your birthright. The birthright was him being born first. He was going to get the majority of his father's wealth when his father died. A very valuable thing. And Jacob offers a bowl of soup. He doesn't outright lie to Esau, but he deceives Esau in Esau's own foolishness. He's not being truthful. He's not representing the truth well to his brother. He's trying to take from his brother. You'll also remember that when Jacob's father was dying, he called in who he thought was Esau, the older brother, and he was going to give him a blessing. But Jacob weaseled his way in and stole the blessing from his father, in that time, outright lying to him. I am your oldest son, Esau. Just bless me and we'll all be okay. Jacob here is about to be punished in verse 2 according to his conduct. He, the Lord, will repay him based on his actions. Some more examples. In the womb, he grasped his brother's heel. And as an adult, he wrestled with God. So God lays this charge here against the Israelites. They're liars, they're deceivers, they're manipulators. And it's been like this from the beginning, all the way back to Jacob, before you even had the tribes. When Jacob was still Jacob, you've been liars from all the way back then. I think Jacob is a character we can relate to more than we do just the Israelites. I don't think, like I said, that we surround God with lies, that we deceive God and try to deceive God intentionally. But I don't know if that's always our way with other people. And God is contrasting Jacob's conduct with his perfect standard. God is reminding them that Jacob, even the father of the Israelites, was a liar and a deceiver. Look at verse 4. Jacob struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him 
at Bethel, and there he spoke with him. The Lord is the God of armies. The Lord is his name. So Jacob here, you might remember, and I think it was Genesis 28, wrestled with God. It says, wrestled with the angel until he said, give me a blessing. And God, or as it says here, the angel gave him a blessing and that place was changed. The name of that place was changed to Bethel or Bethel. Beth meaning house, El meaning God. Jacob said, where I got this blessing, we're going to call this place the house of God. God met Jacob in his sin, in his deceitfulness, in his desire to have more and transformed his life. It's saying that he was this way. He was going to be punished according to his conduct. But then he struggled with God. He wrestled with God. He prevailed in his desire to no longer be one way, but now he wants to be transformed. And who did that? Verse 5, the Lord is the God of armies. The Lord is his name. Jacob's life was changed, transformed by an encounter with God. Has your life been transformed by an encounter with God? Let's read on verse 6. But you must return to your God Maintain love and justice and always put your hope in God. But you is a conjunction. In the Bible, they're really important because it's telling you what's happened or what's going to happen as a result of what has happened. Or it provides a contrast, but it, it makes a clear break here. You've been sinful You've been lying. Jacob was a liar. Jacob found transformation. And then he goes back to the Israelites. But you, this is not about Jacob. This is not about just the, the whole house of Ephraim surrounding God with lies and surrounding God with deceit. But you must return to your God. You must repent. He's calling on them one by one to repent, to turn away from their lies, to turn away from the deception that is so ingrained in who they are and be transformed like Jacob was. If we go from here this time in Hosea's day and fast forward to Jesus, Jesus says it this way, John 10, 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. My sheep know my voice. Do you know the voice of God? Do you hear the voice of God? Lying, deceit, trickery is a pretty clear sign that you're not hearing the voice of God well. You might say, but you don't understand. Because my lying has big consequences. 
where I've found myself now has big ramifications. I didn't lie to my kids about taking them on vacation and just tell them we'll go some other time. And it's not something that I can just work through. It's, it's big. If you're worried about what honesty might cost you, look at the end of verse 6. Put your hope in God. So when, when we start as the Israelites do and we say, this is my lie, what we're saying is, I have no faith, no trust, no hope that God can do better than I can do. I will lie to make this situation good. I will lie to cover up something that would otherwise get me in trouble. I will lie so that I can get ahead in a way that I don't believe God will help me with. The antidote to being bitten by that snake is to put your hope in God. If you're here with your lies, your hope is in yourself. I can do this. And Hosea says, put your hope in God. There's no other way to do it except to say, I can't do this. I can't keep going. I have to put my hope in God. And I think that's why Hosea here talks about Jacob. Because Jacob wrestled with God. Jacob struggled all night with God. How do we put our hope in God? We wrestle through that sin. We ask God for forgiveness. We must return to our God to repent. Verse 6. But then the effect of that repentance is the end of verse 6. Maintain love and justice. Having repented, maintain love and justice and put your hope in God. We have to give up the old lies. We have to move on past them. And most of our lies are outward. Most of our lies are told to someone else. It's that vial of gold that we're trying to sell to someone else, thinking they might be unwitting enough to accept my vial that I say is real gold that's really not gold. But there are other lies that we tell ourselves. It's somewhere on the pendulum from pride. I can do it. I don't need God. I am capable. All the way over to nothing is going to be good. God can't. I can't. And it just leads to anxiety and depression. Most of us fall somewhere on that scale. If you swing towards pride, you're saying that I don't need God. And if you swing the other way towards anxious thoughts and depression, you're saying, I don't trust that God will. Pride is self-explanatory. Anxiety and depression and feeling that God can't help me, that God won't help me, asks questions of yourself like this. If I choose to tell, to tell the truth, what would actually happen? 
Would I be forgiven if they knew my past mistakes? Would I be loved if they really knew me? Would I be accepted if they knew my sin? Would I be heard if they knew the doubts in my mind? Would I be trusted if they knew the insecurities beneath the veneer of my confidence? Would I be welcomed if they knew the loneliness I felt even in a crowd? Would my laughter be shared if they knew it masked my sorrow? Am I enough? I'm plenty. I am enough. I don't need God. Am I enough? Does God love me? I don't think I'm worthy. I don't think I have value. Does God? We wrestle with the feelings and the emotions. Because those feelings and those emotions are not from God. Those feelings and those emotions that lead us toward an internal thought that is just lying to ourselves, whether it's I am enough or I'm never enough, are not from God either way. Because God doesn't want us to be prideful, but God also wants us to have our hope put in him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Because the truth is, you are loved by God. He says it throughout the Bible. The truth is, you are forgiven by God. Christ on the cross showed that he has forgiven you through the blood of Christ. The truth is that you are accepted by God because while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. The truth says to the lies of pride and to the lies of self-defeat that Christ is enough. And we take those thoughts captive, the, the prideful ones, and the self-deprecating ones, and we say, it's not about me. I demolish those arguments and I take those thoughts captive because it's about Christ. The good, the bad, everything in between that we would look at and say, good, humanly, bad, humanly, and we say, these things are not about Christ. So we return to God we maintain love and justice, and we put our hope in God. Now, if you've ever played on a, a sports team of just about any kind, you've almost certainly heard it said, practice makes perfect, right? You've heard that before, practice makes perfect. And it's true in a sense, but practice really only perfects what you're practicing. If you practice lies, you will be good at it. You will be deceptive. You will be able to deceive others well. That's the Israelites. Ephraim surrounds me with lies. We're going to look at specifically the type of lies. But if you practice 
honesty. You'll be good at being honesty. You're being good at being honest. See, they chased the east wind. They pursued and sought things that were destructive to them. They got really good at doing the wrong things. They practiced and practiced deceiving each other. And Jacob was transformed. Jacob's encounter with God led him to no longer practice that deceit, no longer practice his former ways, but to be used by God. So we put our hope in God. Look at verse 7 of Hosea 12. Here's an example of the types of deceit they have. Verse 7, a merchant loves to extort with dishonest scales in his hand. But Ephraim thinks, how rich I have become. I made it all myself. In all my earnings, no one can find any iniquity in me that I can be punished for. I have been the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt, and I will make you live in tents again. A merchant loves to extort. That word loves is to be a friend. A merchant is friends with extortion. They're buddies. Me and my buddy extortion, we're really good at it. And he has dishonest scales in his hand. You you know what a scale is, right? You can imagine someone holding a scale and somebody comes to buy something and they say, I want to buy a pound of that. And the dishonest merchant takes his one pound weight that's been hollowed out and then filled with something lighter and then remelted and added a little bit more copper on the bottom so that you can't really tell that it's only three quarters of a pound instead of a whole pound. So the person comes and wants to buy a pound and he puts that less than a pound weight and then sells less than a pound. A merchant loves to extort with dishonest scales in his hand. And yet Proverbs 11.1 says, dishonest scales are detestable to the Lord, but an accurate weight is his delight. Look at Ephraim here in verse eight. He thinks to himself, how rich I have become. I made it all myself. He's even lying to himself about how he got the riches. He made it through extortion. He lied and deceived his own countrymen so that he could be rich. And then look, in all my earnings, no one can find any sin, any iniquity, any poor business dealings in me because he's really good at it. Nobody can find any iniquity in me. He's not saying I don't have any iniquity. He's saying nobody can find it. I have covered up my sin with so many lies that nobody can find it. At least nothing can be found that I can be punished for. Even if they do catch him, he's got a way out. He's built this house of cards and he's such a good liar and such a good deceiver that he lies to himself saying, I did it. Nobody can catch me. And even if they did, 
I've got a guy I'm going to pin it on. This is how good at lying they have become. But God sees right through it. I have been the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again, as in the festival days. You're not going to live in the city anymore. You're going to be punished. You're going to be judged for all of this. You see, honesty in business dealings are a delight to God. He loves honest scales and detests dishonest scales. And let me give you one reason why God would even care about this. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. Now imagine the merchant with dishonest scales. Imagine an actual witness. Imagine being called as a witness. Jesus says, in a courtroom, I call Brandon as my witness. And the judge says, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Oh, do I have to agree to that? You do. Well, I, okay, I agree to that. So the prosecution comes up and says, are you a faithful witness of Jesus? I am. So we went to your house and we found your scale and we weighed it and it was three quarters of a pound. But you've been representing that it was a whole pound. How do you defend yourself? How do you defend yourself against a blatant, obvious lie that you've now been caught in? Well, I lied. Big deal. Everybody does it. So the prosecution simply says, Your Honor, how can this man be a faithful witness of anything if he is a known liar, if he is a known deceiver, if he has to your face admitted that he is a liar, how is he a faithful witness for Jesus? Jacob, a liar. Ephraim surrounds me with lies. Judah wanders. The merchants extort and are prideful. It's not only that it's an unfaithful witness, but it's also hypocritical when we tell others that they ought to follow God. They ought to live a life that honors Jesus. I lie, I deceive, and I trick people for my own gain, but you should not do that. So where in our lives are we not being truthful? Where in your life might there need to be repentance? Where might you need to say, but I must return to God. I must maintain love and justice and always put my hope in God. And then how do you need accountability in that? 
How do you need another friend, a Christian friend to say, hey, you need help here. And then when they come to you and say, you're straying from the truth, will you be defensive? Will you be open to that? Will you hear them? Will you defend the lie and pile the lie? Are you committed to the truth? A few years ago, we had some chickens in our chicken coop, and I decided to take this like seed mix and just kind of spread it outside the coop and water it. And I thought, when it grows, we'll let the chickens out and we'll let them eat whatever's growing out there. And so I spread this seed mix and buried it a little bit, and it just all started growing. So we let the chickens out, and they'd eat it for a while and then go back inside at night. And over time, they ate most of it down, except this one marvelous plant. It was big. It grew, I mean, it was like, like three feet high. But I also couldn't figure out why the chickens wouldn't eat it. And one day, my neighbor was over, and he just said something. I don't even remember what he said, but he pointed at it, and he's like, oh, I've got that all in my backyard. I was like, I know it's big, but the chickens won't eat it. He's like, yeah, it's a weed. That's not a weed. That's right where I planted all the plants. He's like, no, that's a weed. They're everywhere. And you, you got to like, their roots are deep. It's like got a big taproot and you got to really like get down there to get it. I was disheartened. I, <laughs> I liked that plant, but I didn't realize it was a weed at the time. And the chickens didn't want anything to do with it. You see, when we sow seeds of dishonesty, we harvest a crop of lies. When we sow seeds of honesty, we harvest a crop of truth. When we sow seeds of honesty, we are a witness for Jesus. We can stand at the witness bench and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We are a good witness. We're going to be witnesses one way or the other. You will be my witnesses. The type of witness depends on our actions. Our last section here in chapter 13, verse 12, says Ephraim's guilt is preserved. His sin is stored up. Labor pains come on him. He is not a wise son, and when the time comes, he will not be born. I will ransom them from the power of Sheol. I will redeem them from death. Death, where are your barbs? Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Although he flourishes among his brothers, an east wind will come, a wind from the Lord rising up from the desert. His water source will fail and his spring will run dry. The wind will plunder the treasury of every precious item. Samaria will bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. See, Ephraim here in verse 12 is saying their guilt is preserved. It's not forgotten and it's stored up. Their sin is stored up like a debt they haven't paid. Verse 14 probably best reads, should I ransom them? Should I redeem them? Then 15 gives the judgment of these sinful people who have stored up this debt of sin against God. 
although he flourishes among his brothers, he has this outward flourishing. An east wind will come, a wind from the Lord rising up from the desert. It's probably no longer talking about the, the hot eastern wind that blew across the desert, but now talking about the Assyrian king that the Lord will bring up from the desert. His water source will fail. His spring will run dry. The wind, the Assyrian king, will plunder the treasury of every precious item. Their guilt, their sin, their iniquity, God has not forgotten about it. God still sees and knows this guilt, this sin. And we too run up a debt that we can't afford. The Israelites in Hosea's day had this debt that they could never pay. You fast forward to Paul's time in Romans 2, Paul says, do you despise the riches of his, God's kindness, restraint and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because if you're hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and God's righteous judgment is to be revealed. Reading this, there is no way that we can continue to sin. There's no way that we can continue to lie. See, this passage here in Romans and the judgment that is to come in Hosea, it's not just to inform us. It's to compel us. It's not just to give us information about what God is like, but it's to transform us that we might be like him. It's not just for our knowledge. It's for our knowledge of God. See, Jacob was the deceiver, and then he walked with God. He walked in a place called Luz, light, and then he renamed it House of God. Bethel, because it was the place where he met God. It's repenting of our sin, as it says in chapter 12, returning and repenting of our sin is more than just turning away from a lie. It's turning to the truth. It's more than just turning to the truth. It's turning to the truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth. And the life, absolute truth is what Jesus is. And we turn away from our sin, not just to something, but we turn away from our sin to Jesus. Because otherwise, my guilt is preserved. My sin is stored up. My unrepentant heart is storing up wrath for myself. Repentance starts with confession to God. Whether you are a Christian who has lied or whether you are someone who has never believed in Jesus. You know, if you sit here today and you say, I don't really even know Jesus, I don't know about that. God has you here for a reason. You're a liar. I know you're a liar because I'm a liar. The difference being my wrath is no longer stored up against me. God's wrath, his judgment for sin is no longer preserved in waiting for me. 
Because 1 John says, if you confess your sins, if you admit it to God and tell God, I am wrong. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive your sins and cleanse, purify, wipe them all away from any unrighteousness. If you confess. As a Christian, we confess our sin to God. But then we also seek to make it right with others. Our humility, our repentance, our confession demonstrates that we're like the new Jacob, not the old Jacob that we're not like the merchant with dishonest scales, we're like the merchant with dishonest scales, having had a change of heart, having been transformed and knowing this isn't the way that God would have me to act. And then our truthfulness, our trustworthiness becomes a good witness for God. We're no longer a vial of fool's gold being sold to a fool but we know the real thing. We hear the voice of Jesus. We follow the voice of Jesus because his sheep know him. His sheep follow when he calls. Let's pray. Lord, may we be those sheep who know you, who hear your voice, who seek to follow you. Lord, there is no hope that we have on earth besides the hope that we have in you. Lord, may we repent, may we turn to you, may we put our hope in you. Lord, you've promised that if we do and we confess, that you'll forgive us. You've shown that by sending Christ, that he might pay the penalty for our sin, that he might bear the wrath that was stored up, that was waiting for us so that we don't have to. We're thankful for that sacrifice. We're thankful that, that we do have a hope. The Lord, may this not be information. May it lead to transformation through Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.